If uh, um, you can see from what uh, Pastor uh, opened, for a longer section, we're, not, we're gonna probably not cover all of that. I know we're not going to. We're gonna start in verse 17, hopefully make it up to chapter two, verse five. There's a total chance at some point I'll go if uh, I kind of have three outline points we're going to work through, and we might end up with, with, with only two. So we'll, we'll see how far we get. But the idea is going to be clear by, by, by God's grace. Since uh, Pastor Joshua, your brother, has come to Cornerstone Bible Church, um, Pastor Joshua's talked a lot about culture. And some of that is coming from South Africa. He's coming to Orange County, very different cultures. Um, culture is the way a group of people do things. It's what's normal for us. Culture is how we live. As we read in 1 Corinthians 1 this morning, we're given a little insight. We, we just kind of dipped our feet in the uh, a sand of first century Corinth. And Corinth had a culture that really valued honor and status and that kind of culture had led to these, these, these cults of personality in the church. Not that Paul wanted that. We can see he didn't. Not that Apollos wanted that. But that was what was going on in Corinth. And we, we, we read about some of that in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 12, that people were saying in little clusters, well, I'm, I'm, I'm in Paul's group, and I'm in Apollos' group. And maybe they were even divided by, by, by house churches, by these, like, who your favorite preacher is. Now, that might sound pretty weird to you. Um, you may have your favorite radio teacher, but you're probably not going to quarrel over is Piper better than Joshua Mack or whatever. You're not going to get into little fights about it. Um, but Corinth had a culture that was obsessed with honor and status. Culture was about improving your status, trying to level up, about preserving honor, about increasing your influence. Corinth was a upwardly mobile world where many had the hopes of getting honor by joining or even being seen, being seen with popular people. So it was all about influence and kind of like low-level fame, like who are you associated with? So I've got some, some kind of pictures to help us understand what Corinth was like a little bit. And all these, if you, blend them, if you blend them all together, you might get a little bit of an idea of what Corinth was like. I, I wish we could all time travel. Um, um, you, you, you could kind of imagine Corinth like, like, like New York City at the turn of the uh, 20th century. You can imagine the Statue of Liberty there and Ellis Island welcoming hopeful immigrants to make their way, way in America. Corinth was an important harbor city. Uh, it was, it is on the, or was the, on the isthmus between uh, southern uh, Greece and northern Greece. So, so this isthmus, this narrow strip of land. Um, there was an important harbor on each side of Corinth. To the west was a Rome, to, to, to the east, the, the, the Middle East. Corinth was where people went to make it. It was the center of commerce. Yet that's like most Stories that look glamorous and cities that look glamorous is not the whole story. A third of the city's population may have been slaves. Now, that's not quite as bad as slavery was, was in, in America, but being a slave was still being owned by someone else. And they didn't have quite as many chances 
all of some, but not as many chances as most of the immigrants to the city. Corinth was a city where anything went, where anything goes. Corinth had the pleasures of Vegas, but instead, instead of, of casinos, it was temples. You could worship where you wanted. You didn't even have to really be loyal to God. You could have your pick of gods and pick of temples, and you could choose to go to feast thrown by the, 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 the influencers of that age. The city didn't even really seem to have a problem with Christians, probably because the Christians of Corinth weren't really that different. It was like, yeah, you're a Christian, great. Now, socially, um, Corinth was, it was a social city. And, 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 and um, those outside the circles of kind of like, like popular and powerful people, those on the outside were trying to get in. The rich were using their wealth to increase their status. They sponsored famous athletic competitions. They supported their local temples. They um, uh, had statues made in their honor. They threw lavish and, um, and, and ultimately perverse parties. They cultivated their skills and rhetoric and giving speeches. So, th so the famous wanted to get more famous. And then the rest who weren't famous try to be famous by joining up with the famous. So Corinth was a little like a Jane Austen novel, where the proud looked on those who were beneath them, and those beneath them longed to be accepted. So if you're a Pride and Prejudice fan, you can think of Mr. Collins, the, uh, the cleric kind of guy, and, and, and Lady Catherine. And so if you've read Pride and Prejudice, you know what I'm talking about. He says all kinds of, of obnoxious things about how awesome Lady Catherine is. And that was Corinth, right? You, you, just, you, you wanted to be let into the cool group. Um, or you can imagine, if you're a Pride and Prejudice fan, Mrs. Bennett being obsessed with, with, with her daughters making a good marriage match. That was totally Corinth. Or if you're a real Jane Austen fan and know about Emma, uh, you get Emma in that story cultivating Harriet. You know, and like, oh, I'm going to dote on this person, and by my doting on them, I'm going to make them look good. All of that, classic Corinth. Um, if you've read The uh, Hunger Games, so kind of going to, to a different crowd or seen those movies, the capital city of Pan Am, uh, how many of you have seen any Hunger Games or any Hunger Games? You know what Corinth is. Okay, Corinth is like that city. Um, if you've seen any movies with a lot of high school dramas and cliques and, you know, the kind of rich, powerful, petty girls and the jocks and all that drama, that's Corinth. So one commentator writes, to, to use terms from American culture, schmoozing, massaging a superior's ego, rubbing shoulders with the powerful, pulling strings, scratching each other's back, and dragging rivals' names through the mud, all describe what was required to attain success in, 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 in this culture. So Corinth was pretty human, right? And to be honest, pretty American. The new, the new believers in Corinth were still immersed in this Corinthian culture. Just a couple years after the gospel was preached by, by, by the Apostle Paul, so it was uh, be, 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 kind of he started his ministry there in February or March of, uh, of AD 50, so about 15 or 17 years after Christ has risen from the dead. Um, 
just a few years after that, Paul stayed there for 18 months, and he's writing them around AD 55. And the church had become kind of this playground where, where Christians were working out in their own little cluster honor and status. Even the slaves, though, in the church could, could, could participate in this quest for status. Everyone in the church seemed to be doing that. Of course, not, 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 not everyone, but it was the vibe of the church. So status uh, requires being better than others. If you're trying to get status, if you're trying to, to, to get a reputation, it's, it's somehow you've got to distinguish yourself from others. And wealth can be a, an easy way to distinguish yourself. Um, maybe if you have a, 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 a permissive attitude in a social circle, and you're like, I'm fine with drinking. We can go see those movies. You, you, you might gain some social status by not, being, not having a problem with certain sins. You know, it's just something to distinguish yourself from others. Well, and those kinds of things were going on, on, on in Corinth. But in Corinth, reputation could be tied to, to eloquence. Who could give the most wowing, the most convincing, the most moving speech? And so speeching, speeching, yeah, speeching, uh, which is ironic, speaking was kind of a sport in, 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 in Corinth. It was a competition. It's kind of like Corinth's got talent, right? Instead of singing, there would be who can do the best speech. Now, Corinth was already a culture that, that relished the art of public speaking, People loved hearing a good speech. You know, they got their popcorn and would go and listen to some speeches. Um, you can kind of imagine it was kind of like a dance-off or dueling banjos or a rap battle, but with, 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 with rhetoric. Who could wow with a well-crafted speech? And so this practice, and it's, it's, it's not a stretch to imagine that kind of stuff creeping into the young church where, where this, is, this, is, this is what we do. We, 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 we preach, we teach, we explain God's word. So in Corinth, they tied their identity to, to whomever they most gelled with, or maybe even more, a wealthy person may have said that Apollos, man, he's so much better than Paul. And a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, I totally agree. Because, like, I'm a slave, and it would be really nice to have some wealthy friends. And that was the kind of thing that was going on. Factions were, were developing over who is the best gospel minister. That sounds horrible, and it is. Um, yeah, so kind of there's these clubs going, maybe meeting in individual house churches. We, we, we really don't, don't, aren't totally sure. People are jockeying for, for membership in, in, in these clubs, um, if you read through the, 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 the rest of 1 Corinthians, they can kind of give you a picture of what was going on when they met for the Lord's Supper and why it was a total disaster and some people were getting drunk and, and some people were still hungry. Um, so the Corinthian church had more Corinthian culture than it did gospel culture. And yet all was not hopeless in Corinth. Paul starts very encouraging in 1 Corinthians 1, like in verse 2. He says, to the church, and the church means the called out ones, to the, to, to, to the assembled, yeah, to the assembled of God that is in Corinth, and to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. That's exciting. They were made holy. They were a total mess, but they were a holy mess. 
God had sanctified them. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 7 through 9. He gives some more encouraging language. Listen, um, uh, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Well, this is a lot of encouragement. Sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called to the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul was hopeful. He was encouraging. He was optimistic what God was going to do. And we can have that optimism. If we are in Christ Jesus, God is going to preserve us faithful until the day of Christ. And um, so I think that that's encouraging. You can see why Paul begins this, because the church is a mess. And he's going to say some things to this messy church. He's going to deal in in, in 1 Corinthians 1, kind of as as Pastor Joshua read from from, from verse 10 on, um, with how the Corinthian church had, had appropriated Corinthian culture for the church. But we're going to see where Paul begins. It's, it's, it's kind of surprising where he starts. Because he doesn't just go and say, wow, these divisions are really bad, and you're making Jesus look horrible, and, and what aren't you supposed to be loving one another? All that's true. But Paul turns their attention to God's way of working in the world. He turns their attention to God's way of working in the world. And so this morning, we're going to ask ourselves a big question. Um, Will God's way of working in the world transform the way I live? Now, you might have already been transformed in many ways. If you're in Christ Jesus, there's many ways that God is changing you. But this is like a fundamental way. So the big question we're going to ask ourselves is, and I'm not going to ask it again, Will God's way of working in the world transform the way I live? Because God's way of working in the world is it's radical. It's going to shock us. Because God's way seems foolish. And we can even say, from our human values, it is foolish. So we're, we're, we're going to be examining this morning. And by God's grace, this is just... A process, this, this day is going to be, this sermon is just another step in that process. Because God's already doing this work in your life. And he's going to keep doing this work. And this sermon's not going to do all that. God's word will over a lifetime. But have I exchanged my values for God's values? Have I changed my ways for his ways? Have I traded in my American culture for God's culture? So... If there's a takeaway, I want you to keep thinking about it. So, so, so we asked a big question. Um, it's, so here's a takeaway. I'm going to give you the takeaway now. So you can leave if you want. No, okay. The foolishness of God's way of salvation should make us question our comfort with the world's way of doing life. I'm going to say that multiple times. The foolishness of God's way of salvation, that's not, that's, we're going to see that, God, that Paul says this. The foolishness of God's way of salvation should make us question with our comfort with the world's way of doing life. Once more, and then you're going to have to listen to it online later. The foolishness of God's way of salvation should make us question our comfort with the world's way of doing life. God's culture has to become our culture, and his way has to become our way. Now, as we go back to, 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 to 1 Corinthians here, it doesn't take to look much further into this letter, to see a little bit more of what the heart problem in Corinth was. In 1 Corinthians 3.18, 3, 3, 
Paul says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, that was, that was part of the problem. They wanted to be wise. They wanted to, to be seen as wise and think of themselves as wise. 1 Corinthians 3.21 describes some of this. Let no one boast in men. That's part of the problem. They are boasting in people. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 3 and 4, to go back to just a little bit from those verses, he says, for you are still of the flesh. He's not saying they're not saved, but their way of thinking is not saved thinking. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving, I love this phrase, only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? That's such a cool phrase. Are you not being merely human? The Corinthians were thinking in a way that was merely human. This popularity contest revealed areas where their thinking hadn't been transformed yet. They were missing God's way. They're trying to fit the church into a Corinth mold. So as I already mentioned, Paul doesn't obviously deal with the divisions. We kind of expect him to say, now stop doing this. right? And, 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 and here's why this is so bad. He doesn't talk about how bad the consequences are how bad the consequences could be. Instead, this is kind of where Paul goes instead. Have you forgotten everything about how you were saved? You can imagine Paul continuing. God literally set up this whole thing to be counter every human culture. God wanted to shock you when he saved you. Paul says in uh, chapter 1, verse 17, and we're going to be trying to move through quickly, all the way up to 2.5, if the Lord blesses. So, so keep your Bibles open. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent, of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So that's awesome in itself, uh, that Christ sent Paul. Because when we say Christ sent Paul, <laughs> this is a crucified Christ that sent Paul. This is the resurrected Christ sent Paul. This is the reigning from heaven Christ sent Paul. And so, I mean, if we just even believe that, like that's shocking in itself, right? Like that even sounds foolish right there. A resurrected Christ sent Paul. And he sends Paul to preach the gospel, to proclaim good news, not in the predictable way, in a questionable way. Like what kind of, why are you doing it this way? We're not even getting into the fact of who Paul was that he was persecuting Christians, but not with words of eloquent wisdom. So that's the kind of speech that was meant to win. It's the kind of speech that would win in court, that would win in politics, that, 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 that would win in, in, in public opinion. It was, was when commentary writes, clever, skilled, educated, rhetorically sophisticated speech. That is what eloquent wisdom was. Jesus did not allow Paul. He says he was not sent with words uh, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, Jesus didn't allow Paul to try to win converts by utilizing tricks of, of communication. Not by wowing people with creativity. Jesus says, no, you're not going to do it that way. We're not going to do that in Corinth. We're not going to do that anywhere. You're, speeches that win make the speaker the winner. And that's not what we're doing. right? Jesus didn't send Paul to bring attention to Paul. And here's the reason why, at the end of verse 17, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The gospel of the cross saves, not the preacher. 
right? The gospel of the cross saves, not the preacher. That's what God uses. If the preacher grabs the attention of the audience with his, with his delivery and his word choice and his tone, with his skill and with his reasoning, and someone applauds or cheers or claps or pats him on the back or faints or whatever the response is, it's not the cross of Christ that's doing the saving then. It's emptied of its power. It's emptied of its power. If it's about the speaker, then it's not powerful. God's way is to ensure that the gospel saves. And, and we're going to see how, he, how God does this. Okay? We're going to see how God does this. And so if you're taking notes, this is, you're probably like, I don't know which note I'm on. Here we're going to start that God's way is to proclaim a, few, a foolish message. God's way is to proclaim a foolish message. I think that summarizes verses 18 to 25. God's way, God's culture, is to proclaim a foolish message. 1 Corinthians 1.18 begins, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the word of the cross is folly. Those who are dead in their sins recognize the obvious, right? And because, because it is obvious. You're, you're telling me there's a good news about a crucified Messiah. That's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. See, the cross was a particularly cruel and shameful death. It was reserved for the worst criminals, the worst rebels. You only wished crucifixion upon your worst enemy, and most of you wouldn't. You're like, can't we just put him to, 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 to sleep? Jesus, Jesus had done so many miracles. For him to be abandoned, for him to be betrayed, for him to be tortured only to die in the worst possible way makes no, no human sense. Over time, we can forget how shocking that message of the cross is. It's the word of the cross. If you lived in the first century world and you're walking with your child, and they saw a crucified man, they would have nightmares. Right? You would do everything you could to stop them from looking up because of how horrifying that would be. To herald a crucified savior, savior as the returning king is blatant foolishness. Some, some of us have grown up in the, in the church we aren't shocked anymore to hear that the long-prophesied Messiah, right, the, the, the conclusion of, I don't know, 4,000 years of human history, however many, was publicly shamed and executed when he had the power to stop it, willingly did that. We forget that that message sounds insane. But that's part of the point is that God chose the cross because it would sound insane. We, we, we forget that. Imagine coming in this morning and, and, and seeing in the back an uh, electric chair. Or maybe coming in and seeing a noose hanging. That's the shock that the cross should have. We just have seen it too many times. It's also glowing nicely. So... That's what it should be, for the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing. But 
to those who are being saved, who are waiting for this final revelation of Jesus Christ, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is how God saves and transforms sinners. The word of the cross is how God defeated ultimately Satan. The word of the cross is how God is going to reverse the curse. And the word of the cross is how God reconciles all things to himself. But why the cross? Why this shameful and public and horrific death? God has a reason in verse 19-21. It just wasn't like just chance. Verses 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That's that's coming from Isaiah. I think that's 23, verse 19. Um, Which I've lost. Yeah, from, from Isaiah 29, verse 14. Um, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Where is the wise one? Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? See, the cross is God's intentional plan to expose that the wisdom of the world is foolish. The world's wisdom will not lead men to God. The wise of this age will not embrace this, God's, this plan of God of a crucified Messiah. It's too crazy. The wise ones, the scribes, the, 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 the uh, debaters, they listen and they only hear foolishness. They might be fine with, with a dead martyr. They might be fine with an assassinated leader. They might put him on T-shirts. But to have a king who allowed himself to be executed only to rise again, that's... It doesn't make any sense. It hits them in the face as, 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 as preposterous. Why? Well, because if I had that power, I would never do that. I would never allow that to happen to me. Who would, who would willingly do that? I mean, maybe to allow yourself to be martyred, but only to rise again, and then not even to put your reign on the earth after you rose again, but to go to heaven? No one would do that. The wise professionals of, of this age, the, 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 the philosophers, the therapists, the professors, the ones who are supposed to have the answers, all the experts of this age, are foolish because they reject God's wisdom. Not that there aren't any saved of those, but as classes. Regarding the world's wisdom, one commentator writes, the world's, and here's a quote, values run counter to the cross because it, the world's values, breeds a competitive and self-serving outlook. The world glamorizes self-exaltation and elitism, not self-emptying. The world glamorizes comfort and ease, not suffering. The world glamorizes personal honor and esteem, not humiliation. That's what the cross is about. Self-emptying, suffering, and humiliation. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, For since in the wisdom of God, this is the wisdom of God, that the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God's perfect plan, his plan, was that the world's wise men would not embrace God with wisdom. It was a puzzle that they wouldn't even care to attempt to solve. It's kind of like if someone gave you a nice box for Christmas, a 10,000-piece puzzle that's completely black. 
right? And it's like the super black black that absorbs all the light. It's just, it's, would you want to solve that? No, and that's how the world looks at the cross. It's like, it's a foolish puzzle. I'm not giving, it's nuts. God was pleased to use, and this is what Paul says, the folly of what we preach. This unthinkable, this shocking gospel to save. So God saves through this folly so that only he gets the glory. No one is ever going to say, I figured it out. Let me pat myself on the back. This gospel, this word of the cross is so countercultural. It's so counterhuman that the most powerful king would willingly be shamed and tortured in the place of his rejectors only to rise again. There's like no one would ever write that script. Preaching is about proclaiming. It's not about playing games. It's not a contest we win. Preaching is preaching, proclaiming. It's a simple, clear explanation of what truly happened with a call to respond appropriately. And I can say all of you can preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Right? You know that simple. You can explain that message. If you have some, some confidence about that, we're going to have in the upcoming months, equipping hour, we're going to train just to make sure that you can help you tell the whole story. But I bet you can do it now because you know the word of the cross, that God the Son became man to die for sinners who hated him. And God resurrected him because the punishment had been completed. You know that message. So this Gospel was intentionally in God's plan, folly to the world's wise, because they would only be impressed by something they valued, and they don't value any of those things. The world doesn't really value humility or suffering or self-emptying. It's all about me. So, 1 Corinthians one twenty two, Paul says, This is what the world values. Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews are disappointed because Jesus' miracle abilities, you know, his, the power to do miracles, it wasn't spent building their kind of kingdom. And so they had no use for Jesus. The Greeks didn't want to have any use for Jesus either because their kind of wisdom would, would have resulted in honor and social status and, and influence, not the shame of the cross. They wanted nothing to do with shame. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. For Jews, the message of a, of a crucified Messiah, the descendant of David, the seed of Abraham, crucified, it was a stumbling block they couldn't get over. They, they had no ability. I mean, a hanged man in Deuteronomy 21.23 is a cursed man. Someone on a tree is a cursed person. There's no way that the Messiah could be cursed. They, they're like, no, I won't have any of that. For Gentiles, the message is folly. It's stupid to them. What kind of God would allow, I mean, a perfect son? They can imagine God sending a son, but to suffer shame, to forsake glory, to be an utter failure. They had no place for that. So both Jews and Gentiles interpret only through their worldview of success. What's worthy of honor? What brings glory? And it's not suffering. It's not lowliness. But not all stumble by God's grace. 1 Corinthians 1.24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. This is so cool. The called. 
The called are those in whom God works, uh, who, who respond to the gospel, who awaken to the reality that the gospel is God's power and that the gospel is God's wisdom, that in the gospel, in Christ crucified, we see God's wisdom displayed. We see God's power displayed. Not, 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 not like in the crucifixion as like a side thought, but particularly in the crucifixion. Right? We say, whoa, what a wise God. What a powerful God. That's because that's where salvation is. And we get it not because of anything in us, not because we're better, but because God has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. The gospel is not man's way of doing life. This is God's culture. This is God's way. Without without God's intervention in each of our lives, fallen men can only interpret the God of a crucified Messiah as foolish and weak. It's the only way we could interpret that kind of God. We would see it as the foolishness of God and the weakness of God. We would despise God, but God has the last word. Verse 125, 1 Corinthians 125. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I mean, he can even call it the foolishness of God. It's the weakness of God. It's not God's weakness. It's his strength. It's not God's foolishness. It's his wisdom. But to men, that's all they can interpret it as. But God beats man. His wisdom is greater. His strength is greater. Literally, everyone apart from God would get this wrong. There's not a single human in all of human history that would get this, would believe this gospel unless God opened their eyes. You, if you aren't saved here today, you won't believe this unless God opens your eyes. So if you're like, I I, I want to beg him, say, God, please open my eyes to this truth. Show me your wisdom. Show me your power in a crucified Christ. There's nothing in you that would embrace the gospel. So the word, of the, the word of the cross reveals that the old ways of doing life are futile, are empty. Our culture's view of strength and our culture's view of weakness have to be discarded. We have to get rid of those. Our values are corrupted by fallen thinking. God's way is the way of the cross. God's way is humility God's way is suffering. God's way is shame. God's way is sacrifice. That's the path to glory. And that is really what Christian culture is. That is what it means to be Christian. It's to say, I want God's culture to be my culture. I'm not going to turn away from shame. I'm not going to turn away from suffering. I'm not going to turn away from sacrifice. I'm not going to turn away from emptying myself for the good of others. So God chose the cross to put his wisdom and his power on, on, on display. And the only way we accept it, if we see it, is if he opens our eyes, is if he calls us. So why would we, after our eyes have been opened and, 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 and our ears have been unstopped, why would we go back to the old way of doing things, the old way of, of craving success and honor and approval from men? So that's God's way to save through a foolish message. God's way is also to save a foolish people. And that's good news for us because that includes us. God's way is to solve foolish pe- people. Listen to 1 Corinthians one twenty six. I think that this is how Paul, it's a good summary of what Paul, where Paul goes next. Consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So Paul says, it's time to reflect upon yourselves. So think accurately about who you are. So calling again, consider your callings, how God opened their eyes so they responded to faith to the gospel. And Paul knew this church. He was there. He preached the gospel. He says, not many of you are standouts. Before salvation, no one was standing in line to hear your eloquent speeches. Most of you weren't the economically impressive. Most of you didn't have the honor of being noble-born. You weren't amazing before your salvation, and you're not amazing now. There was lots of participation trophies. Now, that's not an oversight by God, though. God chose them intentionally with a purpose. This is how God works in this world. This, this, we've got to take off the blinders and see things God's way. 1 Corinthians 1, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, the nothings. Talking about us. To bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The wise, the powerful, the elite of this world, they don't feel embarrassed in this life because God chose the foolish, the weak, the low, and despised. They don't care. Like, like now. They're not jealous. They aren't saying, well, why wasn't I chosen by God? I'm so jealous of those Christians. The shame is going to be at the return of Christ. At judgment, when the things that are, the MVPs of the world and the CEOs and the rock stars and the PhDs, when they're all eternally brought to nothing. Not that there's anything wrong with any one of those things, but just that's going to be the shock that they have. Like, I was everything in this world. I had honor and society and fame and money, and now I'm nothing. God's plan, this is God's way of working in the world, is, is an upheaval of expectations. The wise are going to be seen as fools. The powerful are going to be shown incapable of saving themselves. And those who had honor, the influencers of this age, are going to be revealed as nothing before God. All of that was literally nothing. This upheaval is going to be so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's God's big plan here. No human being might boast in the presence of God. None of us. Every person in heaven, every one of us who will be, who's truly saved here will unite, be united saying, there was no earthly reason why God would choose me. I was weak. Sign me up. I was a fool. I was despised. I was a nothing, and yet God chose me. So the, 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 the NFL draft was this past week, and if, 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 if you're a football fan, maybe you were watching it. Um, God intentionally uses his number one pick to draft at the very bottom. Number 262. Like, I don't know if uh, some of you heard about the, 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 last, the Los Angeles Rams coach. He kind of snickered when the Patriots used their 29th pick to pick someone that he thought was way down there. He kind of laughs. What God does is he uses his first pick and chooses the last player. Like the one that you only pick if you have to. Maybe you were that kid in sports. If, God, it's God's, if God's plan is that so no one would boast, and it is, how debased that we would seek to improve our standing in the presence of men, or that we would avoid obedience because of fearing shame. That's 
messing up the whole way that God does the world. 1 Corinthians 1.30, it gets better. Um, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. And because of him, that phrase is out of God, from God. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And it's so beautiful. Um, because of, from God, out of God, you are now in Christ Jesus. And the idea here isn't that we were fools and that we needed wisdom, although that's true. Um, I, the idea is that Jesus is the center of God's wise saving plan. Jesus is God's wisdom to us. And God's wisdom was to save foolishly in a way that none of us would ever sign up for. In Christ, I became what I wasn't and could never become on my own. In Christ, I have righteousness. The legal, God declaring legally that I am not guilty, even though I'm horribly guilty. In Christ, I have sanctification, a holiness which makes me fit for communion with God and welcome into his presence, even though I don't deserve to be close to God. In Christ, we have redemption, rescue from slavery to sin and death. And we don't deserve. We, we're slaves to sin. We love sin. We have redemption. You know, we weren't even on the draft boards. We weren't even number 262. I've never played football. Like God saving us is insane. And that's God's point. He wants us to say, why me, Lord? 1 Corinthians 1.31 gives the answer, so that. As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that is loosely from Jeremiah 9, verse 23 to 24. When the believer boasts, when he, it's not, it's kind of like taking pride in, when he rejoices, when he exalts, when he clings to something, it's not to his moral fitness, it's not to his skill or to his smarts or his ability or to his wisdom. Um, oh, I was so glad I made a nice addition to God's kingdom. Our boasting, our humble exalting, the ground of our confidence has nothing to do with our desirability. It has nothing to do with the old way of evaluating fitness, but instead of the fact that God chose me. Our salvation is not primarily about us, but about him. So we boast in him. And do you want the coolest picture of this? I, I was thinking about uh, 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 that uh, uh, during the uh, um, being washed in his blood song, the, the fountain song. And the, okay, so who does God save? The thief on the cross, right? You know, so how cool that, that that thief on the cross, he had nothing to boast in, right? And, and there Christ is dying for him, the one who deserved to be executed, right? So Christ is becoming a folly to save the last person in the world who deserves salvation. So we boast in him. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So why would we want to return to the old way of doing life? Right? Like, why would we want some of that, that Corinthian culture or whatever that American culture is that craves fame and approval and notice and accolades and followers and likes and pats on the back, the way of, 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 of one-upping another, of craving approval, of fearing man, of judging by externals, of waiting for accommodation to fall from the powers that be? Aren't we to marvel instead at God's salvation plan? 
God chose me, a weak, shameful fool, a thief on the cross. Now, the Apostle Paul embraced God's way. So God reveals his, 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 in a sense, God uses this foolish way of salvation. God uses a foolish message. God chooses foolish people. And the Apostle Paul's like, I'm going to do it God's way. And he totally embraces God's way. And we'll look at this last point quickly here. 1 Corinthians 2.1, And when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul's testimony was that he didn't do ministry in Corinth the world's way. He wasn't trying to get a really well-crafted speech that's going to get some followers. Paul sought to persuade with God's word. True, he wanted to persuade, but it was of the clear teaching of the word, not by turning a phrase. He wasn't waiting for applause, uh, for them to appreciate his creativity and skill. He wasn't putting on a speech to, to uh, get more daily downloads or a number of subscribers to his YouTube channel. Paul's focus was resolutely Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm sticking to the foolish message. And most people are going to look at it as foolish. So don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, when you share the gospel with someone and they're like, that's insane. That's God's way so that no man can boast. Right? That's God's way for God to bring attention to himself. So Jesus Christ and him crucified, that's, that's an offensive message. It's a foolish message. And that message, it can't make sense on its own. It's contrary to everything that the world thinks. And that wasn't because Paul didn't explain it. It's, it's not like that message is foolish just because he's shouting like one-liners from the corner. You know, like sometimes you get this out of context. You're like, oh, wow, that looks kind of foolish. It wasn't that. He was, he was carefully explaining it. He was sitting down with people with God's word and showing them why this is the promised one. But he did preach what he knew was impossible for someone to believe. That was how God works in this world. A crucified Messiah, a powerful king who allows himself to be killed only to raise again so that he can reign from heaven. Right? That's the message we bring again and again and again. So we hope that someone responds in faith, but we sh he tells us do not be surprised when someone doesn't because it's going to take God's miracle to open their eyes. But Paul struck to that message because that message is how God glorifies himself. Now, Paul stuck to that message of Christ and him crucified. He did that God's way, but he also used God's method. So listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 2.3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And there's much like speculating about what the weakness is. It's kind of fun to, to, to just speculate. But that's not the point. Paul's saying there was nothing impressive about me. The Corinthians knew there was nothing impressive about Paul. Paul did not have what the Corinthians valued, and he didn't want it because that would ruin the point of this. You don't have what the world values either, right? At least not most of us. That was God's plan. So do it God's way and just make it clearly known. Now, this, this, this fear and and. And, and, and trembling. What was that? I don't think it was because he was afraid of people. Maybe. 
I think his fear and trembling is because he was so concerned, maybe particularly in Corinth, I think you'd say this about any place he went, that this message was not about him. He did not want to win followers because you could see the, the, the temptation. And maybe you felt that temptation when you're preaching the gospel. And you're like, oh, oh, like I'm, I'm going to share this really good here. I'm going to get, you know, or maybe for preachers as they write a sermon. He didn't want any of a man's ways to win someone. He wanted God's message to win someone. So that may be some of that fear of trembling. I want to do it God's way. If Paul's message made your playlist, it wasn't because of the style. It was because you wanted more of that message of a crucified Christ, because that was hope for you. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. These plausible words of wisdom, it's the art of persuading. It's knowing how to win the audience. He said, I did not use all of that really crafted, wonderful stuff that would wow you. I intentionally didn't. So don't let that be the reason when you, when you take an evangelism class, that's not what you're signing up to do. You just want to make sure you can clearly communicate Christ crucified. Um, he said, it's not so that you would be impressed. You wouldn't be impressed by this message. None of us would be impressed by this message unless God's spirit powerfully opened your eyes. Unless God opened your eyes to see the beauty of a crucified Savior. And that was what Paul wanted, for God's spirit to work in power, bringing people that no one would choose to a Savior no one would choose through a message that no one would choose. If that sounds shocking to you, I, I, like, like this is where this is going to have to, have to kind of like get into our hearts and it's going to have to keep working like for the rest of our lives because it's so shocking. A savior no one would choose for people no one would choose through a message and means that no one would choose. The whole thing is crazy. 1 Corinthians 2.5, and again, here's the reason. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I don't want my faith to rest in someone else's skilled presentation or their, or their smooth-sounding arguments. Do you want the faith of the person that you're sharing the gospel with to be because you did such an excellent job? Because, because you had such a well-crafted? No, we want our faith to be in the power of God. That doesn't mean we don't try to clearly communicate, but we want our faith to be in the power of God. If that describes you, if your faith rests on the power of God, right, that, that God's worked in your heart so that this message is wise to you, so that you love the wisdom of the cross, so that you love the power of the cross, are you willing to live your life that begins with this culture of foolishness, that embraces this culture of foolishness. So are you really kind of willing to live the way that you're saved? Right? You're saved with this culture of like, this is all shocking and insane. So now I'm going to go on with a shocking and insane way of living. Right? I'm going to preach a foolish message to foolish people because this is how God saves. Through foolish means. See, foolishness is God's chosen way in this world. Foolishness is God's chosen way in this world. It's a foolish message that no one would believe, 
foolish methods no one would use, just simple proclaiming a truth, foolish people that no one would choose, so that God alone gets the glory. So have you embraced this new way, God's way of doing life? This is, I think, the thing that's going to have to keep working in my heart for like years to come. Have you embraced this new way, God's way of doing life? I'm not just talking about evangelism. That's, that's just like a sub-point. It's, this, is, this is, are you in awe that God's Spirit powerfully opened your eyes to a foolish message of a crucified Christ when there's no reason why he would want you on his team? Is, is God's wisdom your way of doing life? Are you doing it the Corinthian way? Are you doing it the American way? Are you doing it God's way, the way of the cross, the foolish way? Like really, our lives, gospel culture, is unexplainable. Your neighbors should think you're nuts. Your message is nuts. Your method is nuts. And why God would want you on his team is totally nuts. That, see, it applies to evangelism, but it's only the tip of the iceberg. The entire cosmos is turned upside down in his plan to save foolish people through a crucified Messiah. And he does this so we boast only in him, put all our confidence only in him, rejoice only in him. And he's calling you to do the same, to boast only in him so that only he gets the glory. To go out there, and again, it's not just sharing the gospel, it's the whole of life, and to embrace this foolish way. Will you cling to the wisdom of the cross? Will you cling to the folly of the cross? Or will you go back to your old values, what you you used to boast in, your old cravings for respect, for comfort, for honor, for status, for wealth, for approval, for security, all those old things you used to crave, are you going to do it the new way, the wise way, the foolish way? So choose the way of the cross and God's radically different way of doing life. That's what he was trying to get to them in in their divisions. They're missing the main thing. So suffer for his glory. That's not what they were doing. Suffer for his glory. Be spent for his glory. Be shamed for his glory. Be uncomfortable for his glory. Be emptied for his glory. Be foolish for his glory. Boast in a crucified Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, um, you're so kind. Uh, You're so kind to uh, choose the foolish of this world. You're so kind to do what was best for us in saving through this foolish gospel of the cross of Christ because you know that the best thing for our hearts is that we would boast only in you, that we would rejoice only in you, that we would cling to only you, that all of life would be about you. So, Father, just as you were stripping the Corinthians of their culture, of their way of doing things, by doing something that was so countercultural and so your way. I pray, Father, that you would keep peeling back layer after layer after layer of our way of doing things so that we would do things your way. 
Lord, may the way of the cross just not be a message for us, Lord, not just be the key we have to believe to get in, uh, but may it be so fundamental to how we do life differently, how we do life in a way that, that is unexplainable except by your calling. In Jesus' name, amen.